yeah, I always knew it was going to be challenging, but um, after a few months, it, it started to just come way more easily to me. Um, I've enjoyed it as well because I'm someone who just really likes learning things. Like, I couldn't be in a job if I wasn't constantly developing new knowledge. So for me, it's kept things really interesting. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Science writing is becoming more and more relevant to the fields of pathology and laboratory medicine, and it's a great way to advocate for our field. My guest today is Olivia Gaskell. Olivia is the deputy editor of The Pathologist. Today, we're going to talk about Olivia's background in psychology, how she got started in science writing, and how she got started at The Pathologist. Then we'll talk about some of her favorite features the Pathology Grand Tour podcast, and some of the ways that she advocates for science. All right, here's Olivia Gaskell. I, I want to really dig into kind of your role with the pathologist and, and kind of how that evolved over the last couple of years. But before we get into that, let's start back with your background. So I know you started in psychology, which is kind of far from pathology. And I want to talk about that transition also. But at the beginning then, how, how did you become interested in psychology? Like you say, psychology and pathology, pathology are very different from each other. Um, mm -hmm. I, going into, I guess, science in general, I, had, I kind of had two places um, in my life that kind of made me interested in um, both psychology and science. So, so when I was 11, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was at a time when you know, that was 16 years ago. And it was, you know, we have really good conversations about mental health today, but even 16 years ago, it wasn't really being talked about much, or at least in adolescence. So I had no idea what it was. My mum didn't either. It was only because my neighbour, who was um, a nurse at a time, saw kind of, you know, what was happening in my symptoms and said to my mum, you know, maybe, maybe you should go see a doctor about this, because it could be this thing called OCD. So from that age, I've always kind of been interested in how the brain works, how mental health disorders work, how to um, raise awareness around mental health disorders. So that's kind of what made me interested in psychology. But it still it wasn't really a career choice for me at the time. I mean, I was 11, but even going through high school, I never considered it for a career. And then in year nine. Uh, to, to year nine to 11. So for um, listeners outside of the UK, year nine, you're about, I think like 14, 15 years old in high school. Um, okay. So I uh, had a science teacher who was kind of that formative teacher and he taught science in a way that was really fun and accessible and just kind of like made it my favorite subject basically and made me realize that, you know, going into science, it was an, it was a, 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 it was a career choice that I could, that I could um, go into. So I actually went into college, which is uh, so we finish high school when we're 16 and then we go and do A-levels uh, for when we're 17 and 18 and you choose four subjects that you want to study. So I actually went into college wanting to be a forensic scientist um, and then spectacularly failed biology and chemistry. But I was taking psychology as well because, again, because I've, since 11, I'd been interested in the brain. I thought I'll take psychology. It looks interesting. And then when I went to college, I realized I'm, I'm, I'm not cut out to be, you know, like I just the hard sciences just weren't for me. But actually, psychology, neuroscience, the brain, that was what really interested me. So we did our first module. Our first module was schizophrenia. And, you know, instantly I was just like this, you know, psychology, this is what I want to do. Um, so went to university, did psychology. 
and then uh, took a gap year after my undergraduate degree, went on my gap year to Australia and then came back and did my master's degree in neuroimaging for clinical and cognitive neuroscience. All right. So a couple, a couple of things. Now, I, I think it's really interesting that it was a teacher that got you interested in science because th- this is something that you kind of do. I mean, obviously, you're not a formal teacher, but this is something that you do now. And, and we're going to talk about that later about trying to get in, kids interested in science. So that's that's interesting that it, that happened to you at, at such a young age. And then before we get on to the master's degree, you, you mentioned you you spent a year in Australia. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So um, just quickly going back to the science teacher, it's funny, actually, because I reached out. So I've tried to find him on um, LinkedIn, LinkedIn and Facebook before to be like, hey, by the way, I'm a science writer now like this, this, that that kind of spark in that career was because of you. But I reached out to my old English teacher, my old head of year the other, the other week and was telling her about what I do now. And she was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Like, I'll, I'll pass on because he's not at that high school. The, science teacher isn't at that, that high school anymore um so she's going to pass on um the video that we'll talk about to do with british science week onto him uh she's going to pass it on to him to, to show what i'm doing now because i mentioned him in that video as well but uh-huh. with the gap year um yeah so australia was it i i never thought about taking a gap year but then um towards the end of my undergraduate degree i didn't really know what i wanted to do yet um where i wanted to take my career and then in my third year we I had a, a neuropsychology module and we learned about the split brain, which is um, kind of a phenomena that happens following a corpus callosotomy. It's a procedure where it's a neurosurgical procedure where they split the white matter fibers that connect the left and the right hemisphere in epilepsy patients. So we learned about that in third year and I was like, wow, <laughs> this this is incredible. So I knew that I, w- I wanted to go down the more um, the more brain side of psychology rather than like kind of the social side of the forensics and stuff and I'd heard about a master's degree that my university the University of Manchester was doing called neuroimaging for clinical and cognitive neuroscience but there was only 17 places on the course and at that time it was already full so I was like well you know what I'm gonna go traveling for a year I'm gonna just kind of take a break from undergraduate because by the end of that I was exhausted so I went over to Australia I um worked chilled out just had a nice easy breezy life for a year before I came back to do the masters and that was really fun I would I, I'm very much intending to you know one day properly move over there I hope mm-hmm. okay yeah that's that's somewhere I've never been but I've always wanted to go that that sounds really interesting and I imagine you know after a year like that you, you know you come back you're all recharged and ready to go and yeah then, okay definitely. all right so then you you apply again to the to the master's program and, uh, and and you obviously got accepted now. So this is Masters of Science in Neuroimaging for Clinical and Cognitive Neuroscience. Yeah. Now that that's a, that's a mouthful. So let's kind of talk about what what that actually means. So neuroimaging itself is, uh, you know, MRI, fMRI. So MRI can look at the um, allows you to look at the structure of the brain. fMRI measures blood flow that occurs um, alongside brain activity, where you can kind of infer the function of different uh, brain regions in certain you know cogn- uh, cognitive processes and behaviors and then you have EEG and MEG um, which are a, be- a bit better it's the if you've ever seen like the the caps with the electrodes on them that's uh, EEG so oh, basically yeah. yeah so neuroimaging it was basically imaging but in a kind of a clinical neuroscience context so originally I had intended to go into research with this um, because I thought well if I want to do a PhD uh, at the time I'd, I'd 
was intending to go do a PhD. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm going to use neuroimaging in the PhD, I'm going to need to un- learn about neuroimaging and learn how to do your image analysis and and all that. So yeah, I did the the neuroimaging. I also uh, masters. I also worked alongside it at the university, which. Uh, I don't know what it's like in America, but anyone who's doing a master's degree in the UK is one year. It's so intense. I would not recommend. I had to work part time alongside it for um, to support myself, but I would not recommend it. So that was a very, very stressful year. And I was very much glad to go into the working world after that master's degree. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it was um, it was very stressful. <laughs> I, I, I bet. Wow. So you're learning how to do MRI and fMRI and EEG and all those things like you this is like hands-on experience so we weren't collecting the data um thing is with for example MRI fMRI MEG they're so expensive to actually use that we weren't um conducting the studies ourselves we were learning about analyzing the images how to design the research what research questions you can answer with those uh with those methods it was a very technical master's degree because um, so like I'd never done, you know, like computer programming and stuff. And all of a sudden we were using MATLAB. Um, I learned how to write a bit of MATLAB code like manually during my thesis. And yeah, it was a very technical master's degree compared to coming from a psychology background as well. The master's had very um, varied backgrounds of like uh, students coming in. So some had computer science degrees, some were intercalating medical students, some were psychology. So you know, we were all kind of learning, learning as we went. We didn't all come from from one background, which was nice as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice variety. I read somewhere that you, you were talking about how, you know, most students are, they don't really like the writing part of, you know, especially writing papers and things like that. But this, it sounds like this is something that you always enjoyed. When, when did you realize that you liked writing and, and you enjoyed doing it? Yeah, so I've always been interested, like I've always been good with words, good with writing. I've always loved writing. I remember when I was a kid, I used to write like newsletters about like that. Um, I was an only child, so I had to, you know, entertain myself somehow. But I used to like write right. newsletters and uh, create like little magazines in, in school that were obviously going nowhere. But that's like the leisurely activities that I do as a as a kid and um, so I've always loved writing and I also write um kind of short stories just short fictional stories in my spare time that are non-science related yeah so then when I went to university I very much enjoy I, I started to enjoy the writing side more than the research itself I, I enjoyed the the writing about the research and the editing of um like when I'd finish a draft and go through and edit it and especially weirdly enough, when I'd write my reference section and I'd actually find it really therapeutic <laughs> to write my references, which none of my friends ever felt the same. But I was like, yeah, it's actually yeah. quite nice to I, I just think it's quite therapeutic. So, yeah, when I realized that I preferred the writing about the research more than the research itself, that's when I kind of um, and also the talking about the research. You know, I even now when I talk about psychology in the brain and, and my background I always really light up and become really enthusiastic so when I started to realize that that was the kind of point where I thought maybe a research career isn't really for me maybe you know science communication is the the route that I need to or should be going down and I feel like science communication isn't really talked about at university at least in my experience you know you think that if you're going to do a master's degree or a degree there's only really academia but actually you can like you don't have to be in a lab you can just 
go into industry or you could go into um, a career in science writing communication. Okay. So then how did you kind of discover that there was these, that there were these careers in science writing? And then how did you pursue that route? I actually have no idea where I where I realized that science writing was a thing. Maybe oh, maybe okay. when I was applying for jobs after my master's degree and um, I came across like medical writers and scientific writers, which are obviously very different from from publishing, which is what I do now or general science communication. But then I must I must have like started to look into just general writing, proofreading, editing jobs and then come across it that way. Yeah, that's good. That's a good question. I actually don't know where I first where I first um, realized realized it. But funnily enough, I I partook in a program last year called Science Writers in School, which was a collaboration between the UK's National Literacy Trust and the Linnaean Society. So that involved us be, basically being trained in um, creating our own workshops and delivering those to high school students all about science writing. So I think there's a, a you know great outreach activities that are happening right now that's that's kind of teaching kids that, you know, science doesn't mean that you're going to be in a lab. It doesn't mean that you're going to be in research and academia. Actually, there's loads of different things that you can do with a with a science degree or even science A-levels um, And if you choose to go down that route. Yeah, that's good. That That's important. I mean, I, I certainly, when I was that age, I had no idea that that was, that science writing was, it was even a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Same. All right. Now let's, uh, let's talk about how you, ended up working for the pathologist what was that kind of path like it was I started working for the pathologist in August 2020 so kind of smack bang in the middle of the first year of the pandemic oh yeah yeah I was working at um I was working at the University of Manchester just before it and I was working um as a research administrator for the VR lab there and in um also in clinical trials recruitment and it was always a fixed term contract so I'd started in November 2019 and it was always set to end at the end of June so I was coming up towards the end of June and I was like I have no idea what I'm going to do because we're in the middle of a pandemic who in the world is going to be hiring like nobody has the money or like can risk you know Mm -hmm. spending money in the middle of a pandemic so I was looking for jobs and um that you know I'd actually really enjoyed doing um rather than just kind of jumping from job to job like sometimes you might do as a graduate or you know finding fixed term jobs and then I was looking for writing and editing jobs uh and and kind of scientific career jobs and I happened to come across at the time associate editor at Texera Publishing which is um the for those who don't know the pathologist sits under the publishing company of Texera uh we have um you know sister magazines in in other areas of science and medicine so when i came across that i was like and reading the job description i was like this is this is perfect and it was in it was only like a 30 minute drive out of manchester uh, which is where i'm based so i applied for it and funnily enough i didn't i had my first interview and then you have to have a writing test and the writing test didn't like the the email for some reason didn't come through to me and I nearly missed the opportunity because I had followed up with our HR woman and said um you know I've not heard anything back I assume that you know I wasn't successful and she was like oh has have they not sent you through the writing test like you should have got it and I was like oh my goodness no like I didn't and the the deadline for the test was like this was like a Wednesday and the deadline for the test was the Monday so she said you know when 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 do you want to, when would you be able to get it to us by? I was like, give me two days and I'll get it back to you. So I think that probably helped with me getting the job as well, because I was able to do it in such a tight turnaround. But yeah, so I got the job at the pathologist. Um, 
and haven't haven't looked back since i've loved it all right i want to talk about like what was it like starting you know during the pandemic did you have to go like into the office in person or was this all remote at first so it was all remote at first. I went in on the first day to pick up my equipment and do my induction, like sign my contract and stuff like that. But apart mm-hmm. from that, it was it was fully remote. I didn't even have a desk, to be honest. I'd been working from my kitchen table uh, for the previous, what was it, like four or five months since Mar- the March of that year. So I was like, okay, I have a proper, like a proper good job now. I'm going to have to go get a desk uh, when Ikea opens up. And yeah, so I, I was fully remote, which... <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to um, kind of not cope with it, but how that was going to go. But it actually, actually, I, you know, I didn't really find it difficult in any way. Um, it was, you know, everyone was there to help. Everyone was really responsive if I needed help with anything. And our editor, Michael, he's remote and he's been fully remote for a while now um, before he moved to to Canada uh, last year so you know it wouldn't have really made much of a difference if I was in the office anyway I would have seen other colleagues but my manager was always going to be remote regardless of whether I was in the office so yeah it wasn't it wasn't too bad actually okay well that's good so you're coming from a psychology and neuroscience background and you're and you're jumping into the world of pathology so I want to talk about that transition and what that was like for you did having a background in psychology, did that help? I mean, because pathology in, you know, any kind of area of science has its own, uh, I guess, language in a way. So what was it like to kind of learn that new language? So I think it was difficult because, as I said before, I had very much struggled with biology and chemistry at A-level. I think when you have a degree in some sort of science subject, you're always regardless of the subject itself, you're taught how to appraise and kind of um, critically view or critically read like scientific papers. So, you know, in that sense, it wasn't too difficult because I could pick out, I could pick out the, the the conclusions that authors were making in their research if I was writing about a paper because I was trained to read scientific papers. The more difficult bit was obviously the content uh, because it's not just kind of basic level biology. It's, it's, medical medicine level <laughs> biology and, and chemistry well more biology but so you know it's be it's just been more of um like I think at the when I first started I was making like a word document of phrases or of words that kept coming up like essay for example or, or assay how you say it, or um I don't know like different proteins or genes or you know just different um kind of terms where I was like I don't know what that is I'm going to google it see what it is and then you know write it in this document and then over time it's just over time it's just and even Michael said the same you know you'll you'll onboard yourself with the knowledge over time and then it'll just get easier and easier until you 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 get to the point where you're like I understand all of this without having to google it but mm-hmm. I think um or having to ask questions but I think that's what's a, like most scientific right most science writers and editors go through anyway because a lot of the time you're not going to be you know, especially with psychology, there's not really many psychology magazines around. But, you know, even if you've got a, a different science degree, you're not always going to be if you become a science writer, you're not always going to be writing about your particular specialty. But being a science writer is about being able to read through and understand things enough to then be able to craft it into a story for other people to read uh, more in like a, a non-academic way. So, yeah, I always knew it was going to be challenging, but um, after a few months, it, it started to just come way more easily to me. Um, I've enjoyed it as well because I, 
I'm someone who just really likes learning things. I couldn't be in a job if I wasn't constantly developing new knowledge. So for me, it's kept things really interesting. Yeah, for sure. That, that, that makes sense to me. I can understand that wanting to, you know, constantly be learning new things. I, I, I kind of feel the same way. Yeah. And I thought as well, because, because obviously my background isn't in pathology or lab medicine or a laboratory field, I, I, kind of got quite bad imposter not bad imposter syndrome but I definitely felt some imposter syndrome at the start but you know and I thought you know people in the community uh, the pathology community community are going to be like well she doesn't even have a, a, de- a degree in lab medicine or a background in it or you know and oh, yeah. I, it couldn't have been further from the truth like everybody in the community that's I think that's one of my favorite things about the pathologists is just the the pathology community are just so so nice and they've just like kind of been so welcoming and yeah it's just they're so lovely so yeah that imposter syndrome went away quite quickly because I was like oh nobody's thinking that like everybody's so nice Mm -hmm. yeah that's true you're you're absolutely right okay then this past January then you were promoted to deputy editor and so I'm curious then how did your kind of job duties or how did your role change becoming with the promotion I guess with deputy editor so I was already doing quite a lot of, um, not deputy editor duties, but, you know, you've kind of got to get up to that standard in the first place and then get promoted. So I was already pushing myself further and further in, like, to do kind of roles that were, or responsibilities that might not have been in the associate editor job spec, which was, I'd gone from associate to deputy, to kind of prove that I, you know, deserved a promotion that I was at the level of deputy um so my role hasn't changed too much I, I mean it might have but I'm I just kind of say yes to everything so um you know I might be saying yes to things that actually are in the deputy job spec but I just um don't realize it because I just say yes to everything anyway so um I'm starting to get obviously more responsible uh, more responsibility though and um Michael comes to me more now for like more opinions on things just so then I I'm also developing kind of what's the word like just developing more uh, like having more of a an input I guess into um how like the content that we have on TP I already had like a lot of input anyway but just a bit more responsibility um and more kind of space to share my opinions and have a bit more input in in the brand yeah I wanted to ask you about that like how long did it take you to kind of feel comfortable with, you know, with, with having input or maybe, you know, looking at, at something and saying, you know, maybe we should change this or that, whatever, like being sort of critical about, about the the work. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I'd say it definitely took a good few months, if not a bit longer, something came a bit more quickly than, than others. So, um, for example, our upfront section, which is um, the first set of articles that you see when you open the magazine, I would go through uh, recent research and look for things that I thought might be relevant, might be interesting. I would then send them on to Michael, who would give us feedback and opinion of like, oh, we maybe wouldn't include this because of this. And actually, no, this is a really good find, this one. Um, So over time, I started to learn what to look out for and became a lot more confident in, you know, what the scope of what we covered. Um, There's other things where you know, if people would come to me and ask, uh, like if if um, Michael was was off or if he was in a meeting, and people would come for, to me for an opinion, and I think it's I think it's just about over time really learning about the brand and learning what's best for the brand to then be able to give an opinion. So you know, even now I still kind of say to Michael, "What do you think is best?" Because 
it's always good to get a second opinion and he's the head of the brand but I guess yeah it would definitely take a few months for me to start being a bit more confident and then now I I just I don't know I just I'm definitely more confident now this is the people of pathology podcast with our guest Olivia Gaskill we'll be right back LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Olivia Gaskell on the People of Pathology podcast. Do you have any... Like during your time with the pathologist so far, are there any like projects or features that stand out as some of your favorites? Yeah, definitely. So um, one of them, which um, I won't go into too much because I know we'll talk about it later, is the Pathology Grand Tour podcast. Um, that was really, really fun to do. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, we can come on to that in a sec. And then um, the other is, uh, one of the others is the Infectious Disease Curator. So that oh, yeah. is our weekly newsletter about infectious disease. It was originally a COVID-19 curator, which started, um, Michael and a few other colleagues started in March 2020 before I joined. And that was all about bringing readers a weekly, basically like digesting the news and research and bringing them the most important, relevant, ground, like kind of um, groundbreaking breaking research about COVID because there was so much to sift through um, at the start of the pandemic. And then over time, that's kind of, you know, with the, the, with the pandemic, we've realized that, okay, well, you know what, it's, it's kind of shone a spotlight on the whole landscape of infectious disease. And COVID-19 isn't always going to be on the forefront of people's minds like it was in, let's say, March 2020. So we transitioned that early last year. I think it was like May, no, March, April 2021 to the Infectious Disease Curator. And that's like my kind of project that I have now where I write it on a weekly basis. I am the curator for it. So I really love that. Infectious disease is something that within pathology is, um, and lab medicine is, I think infectious disease is the the kind of area that I've found that I've gravitated more towards that I found most interesting. So yeah, infectious disease creator is one of them. And then the other one is the powerless. So I joined because I joined in August, 2020, I just missed that year's power list. Um, so last year's was my first one. And, um, you know, I was contacting, um, judges securing the panel, uh, the panel of judges. And also, um, when the, you know, judging was over, I was contacting all the finalists and just some of the emails that came through were just so nice where people would be like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Like you just made my day. And like, they'd honestly warm my heart so much. So that was a really rewarding, um, rewarding project that I've been on. And obviously um, we'll be on this year with the the powerless this year. And then finally, I would say my favorite kind of feature that I've worked on is anatomy of a social media success. So obviously pathologists are big on on Twitter with um, Path Twitter. Yep. But they kind of, to my knowledge anyway, don't really branch into like TikTok or Instagram as much. Um, and I came across uh, this account called Institute of Human Anatomy and they were basically doing like showing cadaver, um, not uh, like full cadavers, but like organs or um, just the the anatomy of cadavers and explaining like all the different processes of the body and relating it to like human health and disease 
And I thought this, like, they had, like, I think at the time over 6 million followers, which is incredible. Uh, so I was like, I want to I want to interview these guys and I want to talk about social media and how lab medicine can break into to um, video forms of social media like TikTok. Uh, so that was a really fun one. Uh, that was our October 2021 issue. So, yeah, that was definitely my favorite feature that I've worked on as well. That That's really kind of a wide variety of things. That's that's really cool. Mm, and, uh, definitely. You know, and again, you're you're challenging yourself, and you're learning more more things. So yeah, that, that, that kind of fits into your sort of mindset. I like it. Mm, yeah, and it's it's good because, like, at the pathologist, because we do so much, um, and we cover so much. There's just a lot of scope for a broad mm-hmm. scope for creative freedom. You know, if you want to try something, nothing's off the table. So yeah, that's been really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. You, you, so you mentioned the Pathology Grand Tour podcast. So yeah. let's talk about that for a few minutes. How how did the idea for that uh, come come about I've always wanted to start a podcast I have no idea on what but I would just always wanted to start a podcast another thing that I wanted to do around like a day in the life I wanted uh, lab medicine professionals to maybe either film like a little mini vlog or even just write an article about a day in their life and Michael was like well why don't we do that for the podcast then why don't we combine it and you know do a day of kind of this day in the life concept but as a podcast so way we did it what we did it on was um the podcast is so the pathology grand tour is basically like a 12 episode series on different subspecialties in the lab um each uh, episode is like a different stop on the tour so it visits a different subspecialty on the lab in each episode and the kind of goal of it was to because mick and i were saying that in pathology and lab medicine you have so many subspecialties but you know, someone might be a pathologist in one subspecialty, but not really know what a pathologist in another specialty uh, subspecialty does with their days. Um, so we kind yeah. of wanted to bridge this gap of knowledge and also to, um, you know, hopefully get it out to medical students and as- or aspiring medical students uh, to show them what a broad field pathology can be. There's no one, uh, you know, it's not just... Um, kind of root into the field or there's not just one area of it like it's it's so broad so yeah we did the podcast and um it's been a great success I've, i was like i said before like a lot of work but it was really rewarding it was really nice to do yeah yeah and, and now now doing the podcast all right i could i mean i i kind of know a little bit about this like what there are some challenges to to getting it done like what what for you and and maybe for michael as well like what was kind of the most challenging part I think challenging part was I mean so I didn't have a um Michael and I weren't editing the the podcast that was all and the marketing and stuff that was all done by our team um at the pathologist so I can't really speak uh, about that side but in terms of what Michael and I were doing I would say the most challenging one was scheduling because we had two guests per episode and you know you guys yeah. are all so busy so and we understand that so we're like trying to find a time not just for one guest but for two guests to to line up with each other was really um was really challenging and then I guess for for my own I imagine Michael will have his own challenges but for my own challenges I was actually just really nervous like I'd never done it before and I know you can edit podcasts but I was just because I was the so Michael and I hosted our own episodes we weren't hosting episodes together um but 
yeah, I, I was just so nervous at hosting them because I was like, what if I make a mistake? What if I mess up? Like, I was more nervous hosting them than than being a guest on here, weirdly enough, because um, I was like, I want to get it right. I want to make sure that, you know, we can we can share people's stories in the best way. So, yeah, I think that was the most challenging. On the flip side, the most rewarding, I would say, is hearing people's stories and creating a platform where we can share them and then when the episodes came out listening to them back and uh to the episodes back and being like yeah really really proud of that that was um a really nice nice project to work on yeah you can hear listening through those episodes like a, a lot of the people just how proud they are of the of the work that they're doing and how excited how excited they are to be able to talk about it yeah, definitely. Um, one of the episodes, oh, I can't remember, it was the, um, it wasn't infectious disease, it was microbiology with Elaine Cloutman Green and Bobby, uh, Bobby Pritt. And that, oh, yeah. that was the first episode to come out. It wasn't the first one that I'd recorded, but it was the first to come out. And, um, you know, because of like my interest in, in um, infectious disease throughout the whole thing, you know, when you're just like speaking to someone and you're just in awe of them and you're like, oh my goodness, you're doing such amazing work. Like, I'm so excited for people to hear about this. And yeah, it was, um, it was a really, uh, really fun and really nice to, to hear those stories from people. And also because, you know, you don't, I've not yet met pathologist or lab medicine professional who doesn't want to share their story I think because pathology has such quite um big misconceptions around it everybody wants to you know show people that you know they're not that's not the case and really wants to show them what um lab medicine is actually like so everyone's really excited like you said excited to share the stories yeah yeah for sure I mean uh, for a lot of us we don't often get the chance to chance to do that in, in in normal conversation now as far as the individual episodes i mean were they kind of or i guess the, the i know the questions were sort of scripted out a little bit i mean did you find that your skills as a writer helped in formulating questions yeah i think so because i think with um with questions i mean personally i don't know how michael wrote his so i can't speak on his behalf but for me i would just write out everything that i wanted to know and then and every question that I wanted to ask and then look at, well, how can I ask these in a way that kind of formulates a nice story in the podcast? So I wouldn't just kind of skip from random question to random question. I would kind of put it into more of like a logical, a logical order. Okay. Yeah, I, I can, I can understand that. I try to do that as well. Try to, to create a, a story throughout the episode. So mm. that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So you said it was 12 episodes and are there any plans to do like a, you know, a season two or something like that? Another, another series uh, of, so of the we podcast? Keep, we keep getting asked this all the time and I'm starting to think that we probably should. <laughs> okay. um, we, the the original plan was just to do a 12 episode se- uh, like limited series, uh, but it's got such great feedback. I think we're definitely not ruling out a, um, like another series. It might, for all we know, uh, we've not thought about it too much yet, but for all we know, it could be another podcast, but maybe not a pathology grand tour podcast. Maybe it's um, a podcast focusing on something else and not just like day in the lives uh but we've definitely not ruled it out we just had to see first we wanted to have it as a limited series first just because we didn't know how much work a podcast would entail we didn't know exactly well we went into it basically never having never done like an editorially led podcast before so we wanted to see how that went and didn't want to commit ourselves too much so I think the good feed, the great feedback that we've got so far, I definitely would never like, I wouldn't rule out another series. So Michael, if you're listening, we're doing another series because <laughs> I can't take it back now. 
<laughs> That's great. Okay. All right. I, I, well, I, I will I'll link the uh, the current series. I'll link that in the show notes, everybody. If if you haven't already listened to it, uh, it's it's really all, all the episodes are great, and every I think everybody should hear it. Um, oh, thank you. I mean, and not not just saying that because I was on one of them. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit bit biased opinion there. <laughs> right, right. But no, it's great. It's uh, yeah, the episodes are, um, yeah, they're great. It's it's yeah. just really really nice. Like when I, I go back to listen to um, Michael's episodes because obviously I wasn't I wasn't on those episodes, but um, I also just go back and listen. I hate the sound of my own voice, but I also just go back and listen to my episodes because I think sometimes when you're in when you when I was recording them anyway, and I was so focused on like get it right, get it right that. I was focused on what they were saying, but you know, I like to go back to listen to their stories in a more like relaxed, <laughs> in a more relaxed environment where I'm not just mm-hmm. thinking like, Liv, you need to get it right. You need to, you need to ask this question, this question and follow up with this. So yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I can, I can definitely understand that one. Um, all right, Okay. This, so something else just recently you were, you, had, you did like a, a short video. It was like a little interview video for British science week. I kind of want to talk about this a little bit. I mean, you, you talk about in the, in the video, you kind of talk about your background and some of the things that we've talked about here, but how did, how did you get approached to, to do this interview video? So um, for those who are unaware, British Science Week runs from this year, it's the 11th to the 20th of March. It's like a 10 day celebration of um, science, technology, engineering and maths. Um, We didn't get approached by British Science Week. It was actually like an internal campaign. So at TechSair, we've been filming videos for our social media, um, our social media exec Sophie and our videographer Anna actually approached me and asked if I'd wanted to do uh, like a short video that would just ask me basically like who I was, what I do, what the pathologist, um, how I got into science, uh, advice for young people going into who want to get uh, go into a career in science. So yeah, it was it was just basically an internal campaign that um, Sophie and Anna asked me about because they know that I love all things social media, so they know that I'd say yes. So yeah, that was that was basically it really. And um, my at the time of recording this, my video went live yesterday, I think, on social media on like LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, um, yeah I love doing filming um, and stuff because it's just it's just different from kind of the everyday tasks that I do. Yeah, I I love doing filming and I love doing social media stuff. So they, they knew to ask me to help out with them. Um, and then our other one of our other editors, Jeff, who works on the Ophthalmologist, uh, which is one of the sister publications that I was talking about earlier. Uh, he also had a video, and I think we've got one more editor as well. So it's really nice to get like a um, like a different view, a view of all the different um, editors of <laughs> of Texair in there. You know, mentioned you know doing the the podcast, how you were kind of nervous about getting it right and 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 all of that. But now this is video. Was this harder to do or easier? I mean, were you more nervous or, or less? Video is so different because, um, and I was speaking to Anna, our videographer, about this. That so I'm a very animated person. Um, I'm very energetic. I move my hands a lot when I speak. I'm kind of all over the place, and it must be it must have been really difficult for her to edit because you know, you can take out ums and you can take out it, like you can cut things in video, but it, it kind of sometimes looks weird if you cut it and then all of a sudden I'm in a different position and then a different position. So, um, okay. yeah, I was a bit, yeah, I was a bit nervous about that where it was more, instead of thinking, oh, we can like maybe cut this bit out of my response. It was more, can I go back and just refilm that bit? Um, so it makes like 
their lives easier so yeah and I think with video as well like everybody sees themselves on camera and they're like oh god no <laughs> so you know um I think it's I don't know I, I I enjoy doing video I don't know why I just enjoy doing video but mm. yeah <laughs> I think I think it's still still quite nerve-wracking yeah I, I, I bet I I, I it's it's I think it's for me it's like it's nerve-wracking enough just doing audio yeah the thing with the British Science Week video though I will say is that for video if we're taught so one of the advice for when they asked me what advice I'd have for young people going into career in STEM you know it was nice to be on video because I was saying you know science is for everyone it might not always feel that way but science should be for everybody you know I'm what a scientist I said in the video like, I'm what a scientist looks like my colleagues are what a scientist looks like you know, everybody can be a scientist if they want to be, if they find, you just got to find that topic and that subject that they enjoy. So I think being on video was nice because they can see a, like a, a a woman who's gone into science. So um, they kind of have that visual representation. Obviously there's, there's more representation um, that's needed rather than just like me, a white blonde woman, but you know, it's just nice sometimes to be on video first so young people can hopefully click on and and see that oh yeah that that makes sense and and i like you what you said about you know like you said in the video scientists for everyone and Mm. and this is something i think this is you know because you're an advocate for science in general Mm -hmm. and you know obviously being working with a pathologist that that's part of what what you do and so this does this tie back to something we talked about earlier with your through teacher in school like is this why advocating for science is important to you because you remember what it was like for you younger like you want to have that same kind of uh spark in in younger people now is that yeah so um i do a lot of my kind of outreach work on my science communication instagram account which is science with live for me advocating on there and also just advocating with anybody that i meet is really important to me because you know growing up as I, I said in the video as well, growing up, you kind of think of a scientist as like an Albert Einstein figure in a lab coat. And actually, I mean, there are scientists who look like that, but, you know, that's not the typical, typically what a, a scientist looks like. So for me, right. advocating, it's it's to make science more accessible to people who might otherwise not have considered it. So, you know, I think growing up with my science teacher, the reason why he was so great was because he made it accessible. And sometimes science can be so daunting, especially as a high school student. It can be very daunting. So for me, I want to advocate for science because I want to show that, you know, just because you might be bad at, let's say, chemistry or maths doesn't mean that you're bad at science. It just means that you've not found the field of science that you're interested in yet or that you're good at. So for me, yeah, advocating, it's just to make it known to to people especially you know young young people and and young girls that you know and and underrepresented groups that you know what you you can be a scientist you know you've I want to make it accessible in a way where they they kind of read something that I've written or that I've I don't know made a reel about on Instagram or a, a video and they look at it and they're like wow that that's so interesting like I want to go and uh, go away and read read more about that or look into this topic more so yeah advocating for science is is important to me just to as I said make it more accessible and make people realize that actually there's a place for there should be at least there should be a place for everybody in science yeah I love it that's a great message and I will link to your Instagram account in the show notes as well Liv this has been really interesting I I enjoyed kind of getting to know your background a little bit more and getting to know you a little bit more uh so 
Olivia Gaskell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I hope people really enjoy the episode. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. It's been such a great chat. Great big thanks to Olivia Gaskell. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. We took that idea from them because there's nothing, again, like that in the field of pathology and lab medicine. And we did a top, sort of, I, I, I say top 100, but that's actually, I'm misspeaking. We did a 100 list. And then the next year, we tried to change up the format a little bit and we did a rising stars list. So people who are students in training or in the first five years of their career. Okay. I think that's what really kicked it off because the first list was great, but the second list was wildly popular. And I think that's because so many of these early career pathologists and lab medicine professionals have social media accounts. So I think they really pushed the list and really sent it into the general consciousness. You can hear more from Michael Schubert all the way back in episode five. So it was great talking with Liv. I mean, I, I love her energy and her excitement. It, it, you know, it was great. And she made a couple of really good points. I mean, having a job where you're constantly learning new things, that certainly sounds like pathology to me. And the fact that science is for everyone, which of course means that pathology and lab medicine are for everyone. And if you don't already subscribe to The Pathologist, I mean, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't. It's free. There are a lot of great features in there. I mean, Liv mentioned quite a few of them. They really cover a lot of the cutting edge work that's being done in pathology. So definitely you should check it out. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. <laughs>